Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to 10 Bell Pot. I can't thank you enough, but I would love to thank you a lot more by you guys making a purchase at highspots.com. Guys, I know it's tough. I know money's tight. And, you know, please hang on to your money as much as possible in these times. I won't get into theories and reasons why, because I'll just scare you. And I don't want to scare you. I want to sell you on highspots.com. It's a small business that has been integral to the part of professional wrestling and its growth over the last couple of years. And it employs a lot of independent professional wrestlers who without it would not have a sense of employment and the ability to go chase their dreams, much like I have for the last 15 years. And also too, this is the craziest sale we've ever run at highspots.com. This might be a going out of business sale. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, I, I'm a little optimistic today at this moment, but right now we have 50% off all DVDs and downloads I'm packaging up the DVDs myself personally, so if you buy a DVD, chances are I've got my fingerprints all over it. I promise you I'm coronavirus-free, scout's honor. So you know, go ahead and make a purchase. Also, too, 36% off of all other items other than wrestling ring accessories. This is the time, if there's ever been something on the High Spots website that you're like, you know... Maybe one day I'll buy that or like, mm, I don't know. I really like that, but we'll see. No, this is the time because we are running out of stock and a lot of things, a lot of once in a lifetime autographs, memorabilia is just going out the door and will never come back through the doors again. So if you've ever wanted to make a purchase from highspots.com, if you were able to at this moment in time, I highly encourage you to do so. And uh, thank you for your support and thank you for the support on 10 Bell Pod. Jake Manning may be the only non-medical professional that managed to somehow get busier during the quarantine. One of my first thoughts when all this happened, I was like, ha, the universe is finally going to make Jake take a nap. But that's not the case, is it, Jake? Oh, dear gosh, no. I have been, I worked 15 hours last Friday night um, at highspots.com. As I was discussing off microphone, thankfully, 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 it's been very busy at High Spots. We are basically running a sale, which hopefully is not a going out of business sale. And <laughs> we are basically getting Black Friday amount of orders at HighSpots.com. And normally Black Friday lasts for about three to four days. Uh, this has been going on now for 14, 15 days, um, which I'm very thankful for because that's the thing that keeps the lights on. And after that... Uh, we got to shut the lights off forever, but uh, we're definitely doing WWE 1994 type qualities and we're taking out the water coolers and we are <laughs> counting how many pencils we have. We are taking a lot of inventory right now and I have been super busy and pushed to the edge. And when all the, this was going down, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to have some time to work on my relationship and work on my stand-up and focus on some things and my artistic endeavors. And my girlfriend broke up with me and I've been working like a madman and little or no sleep, little or no food, little or no time to take care of myself. And I've been pushed to the absolute fucking edge of everything. And then all of a sudden now it's to the point 
in the quarantine where people are like, hey, I got this artistic endeavor. Hey, Jake, you want to help me with this? Jake, I got an idea. You want to do an <laughs> online comedy show in front of no people? No, the fuck I don't. Because I tell you what, if this is what wrestling and comedy is going to be is online Skype shit or empty arena <laughs> bullshit, I don't want anything to fucking do with any fucking of it all ever again. I will find something to do with my life. I will probably start a cult because that's the thing that's kept me <laughs> away from starting a cult is pro wrestling money, and comedy. Man. And, and pro wrestling wasn't doing enough of it, so that's why I had to put comedy on top of it to prevent me from being some crazy militaristic leader, uh, very similar to the governor in The Walking Dead. So get your <laughs> eye patches ready, kids, because daddy's coming home. All right. Well, welcome to this special apocalyptic episode of Tim Bell Pod. Uh, I'm Nick, and it sure is great to be here in quarantine with all you dumb hicks. It's a good thing sports got canceled because your favorite team would win zero games anyway. (laughs) Which, by the way, how fucking pisses LeBron James right now? (laughs) Like, he he drugs some of the most talentless teens in the history of the NBA to the NBA Finals, and then he had to run into the three-headed monster time and time again and then when the three-headed monster finally dissipates and he goes to the west fights all the criticism that that always came up like oh the only reason he went to the finals because he was in the east he goes right to the west goes right to the belly of the beast is conquering the dragon looks like he's poised to win his fourth title and then the season doesn't exist anymore like that's what i'm sorry for I've actually come full circle on LeBron James since he's a Laker now, and I love LeBron. All right, uh, moving on. Oh, God. (laughs) Recording in his bedroom. The loving shack, if you will. (laughs) There you go. Oh, God. Yeah, this sounds fucking horrible. Uh, Yeah, you know when when you lose both your jobs because of this thing, and then uh, you almost seriously, like, I'm not joking, seriously uh, contemplate murdering my landlord, and so then you realize you might have to go to civil court, you kind of decide with all the pandemic stuff, maybe I'll just move back in with mom. (laughs) And that kind of worked out. So no uh, zero jobs and uh, attempted murder on my landlord. Fuck Henderson Properties forever. Listen, if things get desperate <laughs> enough, if you want me to pay pay a little visit to them, I most, cer- I most certainly can. This will all be used in court someday. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're joined by the last man standing in the Manning Cave, a s'mores-injected camping fire machine, and the roller of the woods, the man scout Jake Manning. <laughs> I, the fact that that has uh, that is a Vader uh, reference. I, no, oh, Psycho yeah. Sid. Oh yes, that's what? right. I, 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 you're right. Sorry, it, it was one of the masters of the power bombs. <laughs> one, one or the other. All right. So uh, this may be the most Jake Manning heavy episode we've ever done because we have cameos from Tommy Rich, from Bobby Eaton. From Kevin Nash, because today we're diving into the late, great Brad Armstrong. And you didn't even mention George South. George is in this? He fucking should be. Like, <laughs> yeah. For, like, all Brad two- wrestled him like, I don't know, what, seven times or some shit? More uh, like a hundred between 2004 <laughs> and 2006. Like, Brad wasn't allowed to wrestle anybody else except for George South. <laughs> That's why I never got to wrestle Brad. It's because George was hogging him, just like Ricky, <laughs> uh, Ricky Jr. Like, that's why I never wrestled him as much as I should have. And if any uh, modern-day fans need an idea, just think uh, Brad Armstrong is the guy that Kenny Omega stole his entire fucking look from. 
A uh, lot of people actually like uh, Joy Ryan has come out and said that Brett Armstrong was, <laughs> yeah. had a strong influence. I got a strong influence, and we'll we'll discuss throughout. Like I wanted this to be our Wrestle- going into WrestleMania episode because I felt like there was a lot of love for Brett Armstrong, but turns out this might be the best option because everybody's probably really bored right now. So like <laughs> we're gonna check out that podcast Ten Bell Pod because it seems pretty interesting. Oh, Brett Armstrong episode! Like we are at the dire straits of everybody's consuming content time so this may be the best time so a good call on holding it off until now all right well robert bradley james was born in marietta georgia june 15th 1962 and also on this day for this stupid shit uh students for a democratic society completed the port huron statement and this is legitimate this is uh we're so bored i want to be entertained the first person who can tweet me what movie I'm referencing with the Port Huron statement will get $5 from me. Venmo or PayPal, I'll seriously send you $5. Port Huron statement, what movie is that a reference to? All right, I'm fucking done. Good burger. <laughs> yes. All right, uh, Brad was the son of Gail and Joseph James, or as Joe is better known as, Bullet Bob Armstrong. Brad was also the brother of Southern boy Steve Armstrong, pro wrestler and longtime WWE official Scott Armstrong, brother of, if you don't know your ass better call somebody, the road dog, Brian Armstrong. Brad grew up a huge fan of pro wrestling and a big fan of his dad. He'd regularly uh, wait up all night for his dad to come home just to hear a story or get a signed program from the show Bullet Work that night. And he also noticed how his dad always came beat the fuck up all the time. So in the early days, he wasn't exactly sure he wanted to be a pro wrestler, but uh, he definitely was intrigued by it heavily. But that's one of the magic things about being... A baby face, and uh, Tracy Smothers was just was just talking about this um, when we did a fireside chat not too long ago. He was talking about how traditionally, a, a long time, the way that pro wrestling operated is you would just beat the living piss out of a baby face <laughs> just just to just to get sympathy on him. That's what because he was talking about how AEW allows their heels to get heat and get some steam and beat the shit out of the baby face time and time again. And, you know, the references that uh, Tracy was talking about was Dusty Rhodes. You'd always see Dusty Rhodes get his ass whooped. And then, of course, when he got his comeuppance, it meant something. And another reference, babyface, that he referenced was Bob Armstrong, because Tracy just loved Bullet Bob Armstrong, and, and so did a lot of people. And kind of his signature thing was he would just get his fucking ass beat time and time and time again, and you'd just be dying for him to make a comeback. And And that's... One of the hallmarks of the territory days is you would put all this sympathy on a baby face. You would push him all the way to the edge. And when he got to the point that it, you feel like all was going to be lost, he fought his way back. And that's what makes it so special and unique. And that's the thing that made Bullet Bob Armstrong such a big deal. And pretty much in that continental area, that, that southeast area, he was one of the biggest stars for a very long time because of that particular reason. So as far as formal pro wrestling training goes, Brad was trained by his dad, but he said that growing up in a wrestling family with a whole bunch of brothers, he basically had it by the time he was in high school. Well, and also too, like those brothers, I've always heard stories about the Armstrong family and the brothers and how, I don't want to say adversarial because they obviously love each other, but Bob seems like the type of dad that if there was an argument between the two boys or there was an argument with a neighbor kid, Bob would be like, Oh, you got a problem with that kid? Go whoop his ass. 
Yeah. If you kick his ass, you're right. Even if you if even if you think the sky is purple, if you whoop his ass, the sky's purple. You know, he <laughs> seems like that type of dad that's like, if you've got a problem, you got an issue, you go settle it. Like I feel like if there was ever like some sort of disagreement with the brothers, he'd be like, All right, guys, go in the backyard, whoop each other's ass and see who wins and get get it done with, get it all get all that testosterone out, get all that that whatever's going on out of you and just you know, hug each other and tell each other you love her when it's over. And I think that's kind of how they've always been. There's actually a really great story that George told me one time about the Armstrongs. I don't I know George was looking through some family photos for whatever reason. I don't know if somebody was showing some photos or Brad posted something online or Scott or so one of the brothers posted something online. It was like a like a family picture or something like that. But one of the brothers was missing and George asked, like, Hey, where's Scott or Steve or whoever was missing in the photo? And the other brother was like, Oh, he got in a fight with one of us that day and he didn't want to be around any of us. And, <laughs> and, and George's like, what? Like you guys are brothers. You guys like, didn't like you guys fought all the time. And they're like, Oh yeah, we fought all the time. Like there was all, there was never a day where all those brothers got along with each other. So it was always this constant of just beating the crap out of each other. So Bob was always a tough man and he raised some very tough young boys. At just 18 years old, Brad would have his first ever pro wrestling match in 1980 on the 4th of July in Montgomery, Alabama. With his dad in attendance, Brad worked against Jerry Brown of the Hollywood Blondes. You want to know who else made a debut on the 4th of July? Um, Jake Manning? The Man Scout Jake Manning. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh. Debut. So the fact that George has nicknamed me... uh bullet after bob armstrong most specifically because i look like brad armstrong it's because when i first moved here i had reddish hair a good body and he always felt that i look like brad armstrong which was always uh, very near and dear to my heart which we'll discuss later on but uh yeah it's very ironic that he makes his debut on the fourth of july and the man scout character made his debut debut on the fourth of july just very very interesting to me and how my life and love has been intertwined with Brad's. We're really uh, foreshadowing the whole reveal at the end where Jake is in fact Brad fucking Armstrong <laughs> and it's the, the twist of the whole episode. Well, just you wait till I come, come back uh, from all this. If we all come back from this, I'm going to start yeah, using Yeah, put the, an if on everything now. I'm, I'm going to start <laughs> using that Russian leg sweep and the float over. Uh, <laughs> oh, the float over, goddamn. I, I used to do it all the time, but like there was never like a really good time, but I think I'm going to intentionally working working it in a lot more because... <laughs> Please it, do. I don't, think, I don't think enough people... Do, utilize the russian leg sweep especially the float over anymore and i i used to be able to do it we'll see if i can still do it mm -mm. i fucking love the russian leg sweep uh, dude I'm, i've been a mark for that move forever and see like you made me jump over top of you nick because i just love that fucking move so much which by the way if you guys don't know the russian leg sweep used to be bullet bob bomb strikes finish and also brad uh, utilized it as a finish as well so I think, uh, okay so gotcha. so non non-wrestling fans i think you should all I think most people are aware that Bob Armstrong used it as a finish, and, and I know Brad uses it as a finish all the all the time, especially all the times he wrestled with George South, but some people may not be aware of that, just to let you know. So the match with uh, Jerry was a big influence on Brad because Jerry effortlessly and smoothly put Brad in and out of holds, and Jerry was able to take a very green, fresh-out-of-the-box wrestler and make him look more than competent. And Brad thought, I want to be that guy someday. And that's a pretty cool view to have on the business. Following that, Brad was off and running, getting work in his first territory, NWA's Gulf Coast Southeastern Championship Wrestling, 
And he gave a lot of love to Norville Austin for really helping him along as a noob. Some people would know Norville Austin. Uh, him and Coco Beware used to have the pretty young th- or pretty little things, Jake. Pretty young things. Pyts. Uh, yeah, pyt. Pretty young. The J- Michael Jackson song. Pretty young things is a much different Michael Jackson song now. It is uh, not the not the same. <laughs> yeah, right, so, right. He was also one half of the Midnight Express. Uh, or one third there i think it was like randy rose dennis condry like he was a part of like the midnight express before it went over to mid-south first off i want to put out there that uh brad's straight shooting ring of honor shoot is legitimately probably one of my new favorite shoots and one of the gems from that is just he talks about in alabama's uh the first time he ever got split open the hard way was dennis condry gave him 15 stitches and it was so bad that the local news followed him out of the building into the nearby hospital. And that's when he understood and saw what real heat was. And I, I, I had the thought of, Jake, do you remember the first time you got split open the hard way? Oh, that's a good question. It's been, man, I haven't thought about that for a while. It's probably I got busted open my nose. My nose has always been like a fragile egg sometimes in different points of my career where like I've just been hit in it it just exploded. I'm sure it's something like that. Probably in training one day, I got knocked in the nose and just started bleeding. Like I said, I've been hit in the nose so many times it's just been bloodied up so many times that it all just blurs together. I was probably about due before all this quarantine happened to get another bloody nose. Hopefully it would have happened WrestleMania weekend. It would have looked super cool and got some great pictures. (laughs) Of course. So by 1981, Brad went to Georgia Championship Wrestling, kicking off his run there by tag teaming with his dad, Bob, even winning a tournament for the NWA National Tag Team Titles, beating Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, November 26, 1981. And how awesome is it for someone like Brad as you're getting into professional wrestling to be able to to tag with your father? Like one of my, my dad's one and only requests in life was to play in the same outfield with me during fast pitch softball because my dad really liked that. That was like my thing that my dad really got into, like beer league, fast pitch softball, for whatever reason. It was like his escape from working 20 hours a day on a farm, like was on Sunday, taking his family to the local pizza place and being able to play softball every Sunday night with his friends and do something athletic because athletics was always very big in his family. And the fact that I got to be in the same outfield as him was like a, like a big deal for him. So for someone like Brad to tag with his father, I'm sure it meant just as much to Bob as it did Brad, but also too, what better way to learn? I mean, Bob was one of the top baby faces in that area, being able to learn and being able to absorb some of that knowledge, but also to getting into the flow of probably something that was very much like a main event level match very early, getting, you know, getting in the movement of all of that and picking up the momentum like, hey, we got to go here. We got to be move fast here. We got to move slow down here. We got to do this, got to do that. That's just a, a learning experience is just uh, un, can't be replicated any other way. And also, too, it's kind of interesting, too, that later in Brad's career, when even Bob was still wrestling, I, I I think Bob was even wrestling as recent as just a several years ago, but like towards the end of Brad's career, he would team with Bob. And of course, 
Brad would do a lot of the work and just give the hot tag to Bob. You know, it's kind of, you know, so Bob didn't have to do a lot of work at his advanced age. So it's almost like a situation of Bob probably did a lot of the heavy lifting at this point in Brad's career. And then later in Brad's career, he did the heavy lifting for his father. So he kind of returned the favor that way. So it's some nice symmetry to the whole thing. My dad was the greatest church league softball first baseman of all time. <laughs> wow. Out there. I'll give you the infield, but the outfield, Tommy Fearbox at the top of the list, okay? <laughs> we need to put together a squad. So Brad and Bob defended the belts against teams like Kevin Sullivan with Ox Baker and the Funks before dropping the belts to Super Destroyer and Mass Superstar January 22nd, 1982. Brad was also handling his business as a singles competitor, picking up wins over Buzz Sawyer, Kevin Sullivan, Gino Hernandez, and winning a tournament for the NWA United States Junior Heavyweight title. And there's also, for deep dive research stuff, you can see an early version of Piper's Pit on YouTube with Roddy interviewing Brad and kind of talking shit. It's like, oh, you just you just kind of hanging out with your dad? Oh, you you doing daddy stuff? Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Don't you feel like your dad's a bit of a crutch? Oh, you, you need your daddy to do stuff? And then Bob comes out there, talk a little shit. But it's uh, Piper probably had the realization, it's like, man, this could be something. By late 82, early 83, Brad was starting to dip in a few other territories, getting work in Mid-South and St. Louis before going down to Florida. In championship wrestling from Florida, Brad would again get some tag team gold, pairing up with Terry Allen to win the NWA Florida Global Tag Team title. They did it off the fabulous kangaroos who were, uh, Jake, do you know the kangaroos? They were kind of a gimmicky Australian tag team. That gimmicky? Was... They were one of the best of all time, my friend. Really? Uh, Al yeah, Costello I... and I forget the, I always forget the other guy's name, but Al Snow talks about the, the fabulous kangaroos like so much. <laughs> and you look at like tag team wrestling, they were, they were innovators. They were ahead of their time. I mean, just go back and watch some of their matches. Like as far as like tag team wrestling, it wouldn't have been as successful as it was if it wasn't for, for the kangaroos huh by late 83 brad was back in georgia and in early 84 he kicked off a great year by getting into a feud with ted dibiase for the nwa national heavyweight title so tommy rich was in a feud with ted dibiase leading to a loser leaves town match that ted won so rich may or may not have put on a mask and come back as mr r DiBiase, having gone through this bullshit before with JYD and Stagger Lee, wasn't about to get fooled again. So in a match on February 1884, Ted and Mr. R faced off. And after popping Mr. R with a loaded glove, he pulled off the mask, revealing that it was in fact Brad Armstrong. That's when Tommy Rich walks out, distracting Ted long enough to get rolled up by Brad, allowing Armstrong to win the NWA National Heavyweight Championship. So he's collecting some belts right now. Yeah, the video is so much fun, too, because it's the announcer's like, oh, we know who this is. We're smart. We're smart. They finally pulled off, and they cut to Tommy Rich walking out and just going, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody and, uh, say something about unmasking oh, somebody <laughs> angle. <laughs> and then uh, Brad gets the roll up on a shocked and just totally flabbergasted uh, DiBiase, and then the big one, two, three, and chaos, and, you know, all. 85 people in the studio audience makes it sound like 5 million. It's pretty special. Brad would trade that belt with the spoiler before losing it for good that May. Um, another thing that's worth looking up, uh, Brad Armstrong versus Jack Briscoe, which the big significance with this was uh, it was a tournament final. And if you won it, you got to face Ric Flair for the NWA belt. 
And according to Jack Briscoe, I don't know, apparently the match between him and Brad had a ratings record on TBS that lasted up to 10 to 15 years, according to Jack. But uh, it's a pretty good little uh, short little match with those two. Brad wouldn't be done winning gold in 84, again winning the NWA National Tag Team titles, this time with White Lightning Tim Horner after forming the Lightning Express. I call my penis White Lightning because it's white, it strikes quick, and it feels like static electricity when I pee. (laughs) Did you just steal a joke from Spencer, or is that you? (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Um, the, The Lightning Express... It's an interesting discussion. T- uh, Tim Horner and, and Brad Armstrong as a team, th- there are some people that will go back and watch some of those matches and, and, and you'll see them and you're like, holy cow, why were these guys not one of the biggest tag teams in all of the land? Well, that's because they had to fall in line behind the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, the Fantastics. They had all these, they came in at a time when there was all these really fantastic tag teams and even the fantastic they had a hard time getting over <laughs> because they were seen as second to the rock and roll express so the fact that you have the lightning express so it's just maybe the third best express there is but <laughs> that's one of the third best tag teams in all the world so it's 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 a very it was very tough for them to get over where if they would have came at a different time different place or before the rock and roll express they could have been the biggest tag team in all the world but they always like you see all the examples of tim horner and brad going into places and people bringing them in and they just kind of stay at the middle for a long period of times because like i said even the fantastics had a hard time getting over but you're also another express team Maybe a different name could have helped. Yeah, I don't know. I maybe, maybe a different packaging. Maybe like 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 some sort of like unique gimmick that makes them stand out. Kind of like the sheep herders kind of stood out a little bit. Um, maybe I, I don't know. But like the Lightning Express is kind of one of those lost things in professional wrestling. This really great, fantastic team that got very much lost in the shuffle. That if you put it in different era, a different set of circumstances, could have been one of the biggest things ever. And some people might know Tim Horner as Jim Cornette's favorite wrestler, which I finally listened to the 30-minute takedown of Tim Horner. I assume, Jake, you've heard this before? Uh, here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) I have a story about Tim Horner. If you want to go on a little sidebar about Tim Horner? Yeah, 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 fuck. Where where are we going? What are we doing? There was a show that George booked us on, or got us on, that is. It was one of Ted DiBiase's church religion shows that he was running he ran in a big venue in knoxville and tim horner of course from that area basically helped line some of it up get nature a ring was secure he had some of his students on the show and of course you know tim horner's students and georgia students are there so they just put us all in a big eight-man tag match of course, we have a lot of big names. Like Dr. Death was on it. Kamala was on it. Uh, there were several, like Honky Tonk Man, Coco Beware. There were bigger names on the show. Damn. So they, did, they didn't want to give a lot of time to the students, which is fine. And it was a Tuesday night show. They want to get it done very fast. And, of course, Ted's got to give his testimony at the end. So um, you got to leave some time for that as well. So they're not giving us a lot of time in this eight-man tag. And this was probably 2008, 2009, Jake Manning, who in ring probably at my peak form, but also at my biggest fucking asshole level. And <laughs> Tim Horner was kind of helping laying out the show along with George. So we're in this eight man tag and they've got Tim Horner student you know, and the Tim Horner students, you know, one was baby Hayes, one was healed. They wanted to start this eight man tag, but they only give us 
eight to ten minutes for this eight-man tag. So it's got to move very fast, obviously, and you got to think of a very fast pace to make sure everybody kind of gets their stuff in. Well, Tim Horner's students, they get in and they do the longest fucking beginning <laughs> stalling spot. Like, not even like they do the spots. They lock up in the corner, clean break. Lock up in the corner. They'll look like he's going to do a dirty break, but he doesn't. Like, the real, like, they, they don't need, they don't bump. They, and we are the first match on the show. They don't bump. They dick around. They stall. They eat up all this time. They go three to four minutes, and they wow. don't fucking do anything. And they finally just end it with a shoulder tackle. I was enraged. <laughs> I was as fuck. And keep in mind, before we went out, Tim Horner stressed to us over and over and over and over and over again. You guys got only eight to ten minutes. Do not go over. Do not go over. Do not go over. And wow. I'm in fucking raged and i look right at one of tim horner's students i go tag me the fuck in and fucking he tags me in and one of the students wanted to wrestle with me and i go no 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 no. and i fucking pointed right at charlie dreamer like you get him in right now because there's 400 people in here they want to see some action and they've been just fucking giving bullshit and i'm fucking irate and i tag charlie dreamer and we do this amazing opening spot it's it was opening spot we used to do all the time tackle drop down leap frog uh set behind throw for russian lakes we come off again come back tilt to whirl drop kick sell up in the corner uh regular flying head scissors roll through uh arm drag grab the arm shoot him off again come back again arm drag shoot off bam 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 there's a spot me and charlie had done multiple times over and over again, we had down to a, a fucking tee and it looked incredible. And then we got right into the heat, got right through it, and got right in and out, right probably at like 10 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> After these guys had already burned off three to four minutes of the fucking match. Jesus. We get to the back and Tim Horner starts yelling at me. Uh, wait, it, sorry, you said at you? At me. What the? F he goes, what the fuck are you doing? You guys didn't do do anything out there. Like, seriously, like he started screaming at me like he goes, I expect you guys to go a little bit longer. I go, motherfucker, uh... we you told us eight to ten minutes and your fucking boys fucked <laughs> off for three to four minutes and did do jack shit. I was giving these people that I think the only reason he was mad is because I purposely showed up his students. Yeah. Um, right. And I, I think that's why he yelled at me. I can't remember if he, he, he was some of the bullshit. I can't remember if he told me that we went short on our time or we went over on our time, but he it was some sort of discrepancy where we hit exactly what our time was. And this motherfucker was still mad that we didn't do enough or too little. I can't remember what the argument was because I was blinded by fucking rage through that match. <laughs> Your memory doesn't work good when you're just enraged. And then he came back and fucking yelled at me. So I was livid about it. I remember going back to the High Spots office and telling Michael this whole fucking thing. And he was just like, don't get too mad at Tim Horner. He's supposed to be our ally against this war against Cornette. And I'm like, no, fuck him. I don't, <laughs> if, 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 if he's our ally, fuck off. I don't want to fight this war. So like, <laughs> that's basically my thought on Tim Horner. What I'm saying is, don't put any respect on Tim Horner's name. That's <laughs> to fans. Anytime a wrestler gets in the ring and you know uh, in a tag match and he points at the other guy, to us we're like, oh, he's calling that guy out. This is so cool. <laughs> Sometimes they're just like, I'm not wrestling this idiot, so tag him, tag him now, or fuck off. Oh, Davey Richards used to do that all the time when uh, Cedric had a tag team partner. 
I'm not going to say who it is because I actually <laughs> like the individual, but uh, Davy Richards from time to time would get in and point over the apron if, if Cedric was on the apron. He'd be like, no, 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 you attach Cedric Alexander in. I, wanna wrestle <laughs> I don't want to wrestle the guy who's in the ring right now. I want Cedric Alexander. Get him in. Get him in. Give me more of him. To cap off an awesome year of winning and titles, December of 84, Brad Armstrong went to Mid-South where he took the Mid-South North American title off the great Ernelad. Armstrong would fend off Ernie in rematches and also defend his belt against Steve Williams, Hercules Hernandez, and Buddy Landell before losing it to Ted DiBiase January of 85. Beltless, Brad would hang around Mid-South a little longer to feud with Jake Roberts. He'd have more matches against Dr. Death, and he'd even tag up with their boy, Mr. Brickhouse Brown. They got some YouTube matches. Brickhouse comes out with his boombox. They both got the same exact hair, <laughs> different color skin. It is the best Bill Watts balance of, like, see, I ain't racist tag team you've ever seen. Well, Brickhouse tells a great fucking story about their dynamic. Uh, it was actually supposed to be a much bigger deal. And they, they had a feud with the Dirty White Boys. And Bill Watts pulled Brad and Brickhouse aside. And basically broke it down. Like, all right, guys, this is how I want all of your tag team matches to go. He goes, look, you don't see Superman until the end of the episode. Okay? You you save <laughs> Superman for the last five minutes of the episode. And he always comes in and saves Lois Lane. Well, guess what? Brad, you are Lois Lane. Brickhouse, you are Superman. I don't want to <laughs> see you in that ring into the last couple minutes of the match. I don't want to have you start. I don't want you in at all. I want Brad to start every match. I want him to take the cutoff. I want him to take the heat. And then you tag in Brickhouse, and he comes in and saves the day. And that's how I want every single one of these tag matches to go. Well, Lyndon of the Dirty White Boys... Didn't get that memo and started like saying all kinds of stuff. He antagonized Brickhouse to come on in and kept antagonizing him. And Brickhouse is like, no, 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 no. I'm, I got the last two minutes. And then he kept putting it on him and people started thinking Brickhouse was chicken. And Brickhouse like, I can't, I can't look chicken or else Bill Watts is going to whip my ass. But he's also going to whip my ass if I come in. So it's like, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. But I'm not going to look like a fool in front of these people. So he came in wrestled for the first five minutes of the tag match, tag Brad in, and then Brad took the, the deal and stuff like that and took the heat, and then, and then Brickhouse came back in again. As soon as I got to the back, Bill Watts got in their face and goes, Motherfucker, what did I tell you? What did I goddamn tell you? I said we don't see Superman until the end of the episode. Brad is Lois Lane and Brickhouse you Superman. But Superman out here in the first five to ten minutes of this match, nobody wants to see that motherfucker at the end. So could have been a lot better, but obviously that enraged Bill Watts. And once you enrage Bill Watts, he usually doesn't go back to it. <laughs> After leaving Mid-South, Brad would go back to the Gulf Coast Territory, which was now Continental Championship Wrestling. There, he'd win another tag team title with Tim Horner, and he'd also start a feud with Jerry Stubbs over the NWA Continental Heavyweight title, a title his dad once held. And Brad talks about how finally going back to Gulf is when he really felt down in his soul that he got out of his dad's shadow it wasn't the first time he was alone but it was the first time he really felt that like all right this is me i'm brad armstrong i'm not bob's kid 
Summer of 86, Brad went on his first tour of All Japan Pro Wrestling to take part in a tournament to determine the first World Junior Heavyweight Championship. He actually made it all the way to the finals, but lost the match and the title to Hiro Saito July 31st after getting caught with a German suplex that seemed kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, it's it's kind of an abrupt ending. Uh, it's a pretty good match. It's nothing solid. I, I don't think I'd seen a Hiro Saito match before, and him winning the tournament i guess they were pretty high on him at the time but uh yeah i think it's on i think there's a facebook video of it it's it's a solid match just for brad but uh yeah worth checking out he'd head back to continental to pick up his feud with jerry stubbs before heading to mid-atlantic championship wrestling where he'd get his first taste of a major pay-per-view taking on gorgeous jimmy garvin at starcade 86 man if you want to see two dudes have a start a match with good heat and totally buy the two dudes want to kill the shit out of each other. Watch this match. There's these moments where they go at each other and then there's, there's kind of a break and a stare down and where you think there'll be like another two or three beats of walking around staring at each other. They immediately go right back at each other and it's so good. I, you can buy the shit out of the heat because they, there's, they subtract just those little moments that you're used to. And it makes it feel all the more real because like, oh shit, oh shit, didn't expect that. It's it's a really damn good match. It goes 15 minutes. The crowd's hot. Hell of a match worth checking out for sure. And then look out, Clash of the Champions 2. There's a U.S. title match with Barry Windham. Really damn good. Um, and then this match is seriously one of the, if you want to watch some Brad matches to show what he was, what he could do, uh, watch Clash of the Champions 3 versus Mike Rotunda. TV title match. Brad Armstrong uh, wearing a David Lee Ross shirt looking like you I say the Kenny Omega shit watch this match you'll see the Kenny Omega stuff this is one of the hottest crowds I have seen in forever just like early clash matches or early clash shows man they were rabid as fuck um it goes 20 minutes but it's it's really interesting I haven't seen this angle maybe Jake can chime in if he's I'm, I'm sure it's been done so uh Rotunda has the TV title Brad's kind of the up-and-comer. He's the underdog. And instead of maybe working the idea that Brad is trying to get the pin before the 20 minutes is up, like, oh, guy, if he, if he doesn't pin him, then he doesn't get the belt. But it's the last, like, three minutes is Rotunda beating the shit out of Brad and repeatedly trying to pin him because he's the TV champ and he needs to show why he's the champ. But it's Brad repeatedly kicking out of it, and it's Jim Ross just screaming, going mad on, but Armstrong won't quit. He just won't go down. And it's to the very end of the bell that it, they're selling that Brad made the full 20 minutes and that his heart is so fucking big and putting him over that way rather than stressing that, oh, he might win the belt. It's just showing that he could go 20 minutes with the TV champ for as low on the totem pole as he might have been seen at the time. I th it was a pretty cool angle that I don't, I haven't seen that story too much to build someone up. You don't have to build them up right then in that match, but it's kind of one of those incremental steps of saying, this dude's got hard, this dude can go with the TV champ. Yeah, it's just one of those things about putting the sympathy on the baby face. And obviously, yeah. as you mentioned in that, Brad was at a different position than Rotundo. So it's just this situation of, you know, him being seen at that same level. You couldn't just put Brad in and he's like if Brad was beating him up towards the end of the match when he's viewed it in the audience eyes as less than the TV champ. It just is odd and it looks like you're forcing it down their throat where if you like zoom out and recognize, OK, you're at this level. I'm at this level. I need to bring you up. And I think that we don't do that enough and enough of that isn't done 
in professional wrestling even today is like kind of zoom out and look at it like okay the fans see me as this right now how can i uh, be seen as just as good as this guy or i'm viewed as this my opponent is viewed as this how can i bring this up how can i make him this or on the same level as me where a lot of times it's like oh i'm a star i'm just gonna do all my shit as opposed yeah, to right. going like, okay, well, the crowd doesn't know me here. This is my first time here, so I got to introduce myself. So I got to do probably some stuff that I'm I, I, I've done before that I know works and kind of get people in, or like, oh, they don't know to hate me yet. I have to do some stuff to make sure that they hate me. It, it, it's just understanding how you're viewed by the audience. I think it's forgotten about lot now because you're just like, oh, I just want to do my shit and just do all like I'm a star. I'm cool. I'll do all this and you're, and you'll just like me regardless. Like no, no, like. Tell the story of what people think about you. Like think think about what your perception is walking through the door. I'm this, right. or you can use that to your advantage in the sense that with someone like me, when I come out in my Boy Scout outfit, you think I'm going to be a joke. What if I do something that's really vicious out of nowhere, or I really do something very dastardly, where you think I'm going to be ha 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 funny, and I just beat the crap out of somebody all of a sudden it's like <laughs> yeah. oh i like this dude not only is he not afraid to get laughed at but he also whoops some ass like the, it's understanding and playing with that this is just just another story in being being aware but you know look at brad's career and all the things that he's done he still needs to be pushed up and especially in the stacked lineup that mid-atlantic had as far as talent goes you you could just go down their roster at the time and you're just you look at it compared to the WWF at that time, and you're like, "Wow! Like, how did like Mid Atlantic go away with this type of talent roster?" It's 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 one of those those things. They were just stacked talent wise, and for someone like Brad Armstrong to come in, where he would have been the top draw in any territory in the country at that time, he still needed a lot of work in Mid Atlantic because Mid Atlantic was stacked at the time. Hell yeah! By spring of '87, he'd reform Lightning Express and go to what was now Bill Watts' UWF and win the tag team titles from Sting and Rick Steiner. They go on a pretty epic run with the belts, holding them for 152 days before getting licked to death by the Sheep Herders, aka the Bushwhackers. The Sheep Herders would actually be the last team to ever hold the UWF tag team titles, as just over a month later, UWF was purchased by Jim Crockett which meant Lightning Express was heading back to the Carolinas to what was soon to become World Championship Wrestling. If you want to check out any good Brad stuff from this era, look up the Arn Anderson match that's on YouTube. That's 91287. That's Arn being a heel piece of shit. It's really good. And then uh, there's a match against Al Perez. There's a flying armbar reversal that Brad now do that I, honest to God, all the wrestling I've seen in my life, never seen in my life. They, they, they did it, though. In WCW, the Lightning Express would continue feuding with the Bushwhackers as well as working Midnight Express until Tim Horner left the promotion to go work for WWF. That left Brad fending for himself in various tag teams and six-man combinations and working as a singles competitor against Mike Rotunda, Ric Flair, and Lex Luger. By September 1990, Horner was back and he and Brad would get the band back together, taking on the Master Blasters. As your boy, Master Blaster Still, Kevin Nash, was making his two-sweet pro wrestling debut. Yeah, my boy. And also, too, I have been really digging Kevin Nash's uh, Instagram feed. Him and me kind of see where we're at right now as a society and a culture and how 
things could go either way. I think him and me are seeing the world in a very similar lens right now. So if we do go into the apocalypse time, the Master Blasters might be a real thing and I might be like one half of them. <laughs> so it might be me and Kevin Nash just fighting our way through the country. Brad tells a really good story before the match that Nash and uh, his Iron and Steel or whatever the fuck they were, that Nash is looking at Tim and Brad before they go, go out there and Nash is like, you must fucking hate us. <laughs> <laughs> we're just two young guys coming in here and you guys are the, the workers and we're just these big goofy dudes and like, God damn. I fucking love Kevin Nash because he can just cut through the shit and like. Yeah, he's good at that. He's just, he recognizes like the situation right away and just assesses it and makes the biggest fucking joke. My favorite joke of all time in, in a locker room is by Kevin Nash. He was booked for Hermie Sadler's UWF shows and he was, he was super late, but he was just going to wrestle like a three or four minute match against Charlie Dreamer, in fact, of all people. And obviously, if you've seen, ever seen a picture of Charlie Dreamer, he's roughly about the same size as me. He's got long blonde hair. I think he's just wearing trunks. Kevin Nash shows up and he's a little late and he goes and he's like kind of a little bit of a tizzy. He's just like, all right, who am I working? And Charlie walked up to him and goes, uh, uh, me, sir, are you wrestling me? And Kevin Nash looked right at Charlie Dreamer, looked him up and down. And he goes, oh, okay. What's your finish, kid? It's <laughs> 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 the funniest goddamn shit. It just it, it busted out of the whole locker room. Like anybody who was casually listening to that conversation laughed hysterically at it. And that's just how awesome Kevin is. And, and considering how funny Brad is in the locker room, imagine what Brad's reply was at the time. <laughs> Dude, yeah, prob right. Probably just that conversation was far more entertaining than what the match was at the time because uh, very green Kevin Nash might not have been in the best to watch, but give it a few years, it probably would have been awesome. In September 1990, Brad would get a singles run as one of his first weird WCW gimmicks. The Candyman, and rumor has it, if you turn off all your lights and say Candyman three times in the mirror, Brad Armstrong will show up to your house and put you over. And that's just, this is always a reference to Brad being a good worker. You just take a good worker and you just slap a fucking gimmick on him. And this is all Jim Hurd's idea of like, uh, let's get weird shit like WWE has, but your ideas are not coming from a genius. They're coming from Jim Hurd. And... Candyman is just a fucking example of that and just Brad being too nice to just say no and be like no that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard I'm not doing that and just like alright well I'll figure out how to make it work where that attitude made him a good wrestler it probably didn't suit him in making him a wrestling superstar if, right. if that makes any sense Brad talks about how uh, one of the main reasons for this is that the Mars Candy Company was a sponsor or investor. I forget exactly what he said. So, of course, they're like, oh, yeah, just pass out the candy that we're giving you for free. So, of course, it's all tied into that shit. The Candyman, dressed in red and white tights and handed out candy to kids on his way to the ring. Uh, he was actually given a bit of a, a push there for a second, getting wins over Dutch Mantel, Buddy Landell, and James Earl Wright. The undefeated Candyman would finally fall November 15th when the Iron Sheik broke his facking back and make him humble. On Clash of the Champions 13, November 20th, the Candyman was beat on TV by the debuting Big Cat, who was later Mr. Hughes. Big Cat catches Brad in the torture rack, and Jim Ross would really, really like you to know that Brad Armstrong 
did not give up, he's never given up, and the referee stopped the match. Yeah, he's so adamant. It's, it makes you, like, wonder about Jim Ross. <laughs> By the beginning of 91, Armstrong had dropped the Candyman gimmick and reunited with Tim Horner, and they'd have matches against the Fabulous Freebirds, Arn Anderson with Barry Windham, and the Royal Family, Rip Morgan and Jack Victory. On February 24th at WrestleWar 91, Armstrong would have a match against Bobby Eaton. They do the knuckle lock test of strength spot, and Brad Armstrong physically walks up on top of Bobby Eaton. Oh, and yeah. He just jumps over him. Nuts. It's so fucking cool. That spot, I literally like, this is like Quackenbush uh, Claudio type shit. Then it was, you know, 91 in WCW. I think Bobby used to do that spot a lot. Bobby was always a very good base, like a surprisingly good base. For like a lot of stuff like that with Ricky Morton, you go back and look at some of the tags. I think you think they even did that with Ricky Morton. Also, Dennis Condry, an underestimated post, and that's why it made it very good and explains why the Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express was so good because Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry were these amazing like post guys that if guys wanted to fly around or jump on top of them or or do all kinds of things or jump on somebody's shoulders and you know give them some sort of head scissors tilt to whirl whatever like Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry could show up to Chikara or PWG tomorrow <laughs> and post for Ricochet and Cedric Alexander no problem that's how that's how good they were very very underestimated as far as that goes but I have not seen this match and it's very embarrassing but there's a lot of early 90s WCW that I have not seen just because I was unaware of the existence of WCW in the early 90s. I was strictly a <laughs> WWF kid at the time. And so I have to physically go back and watch it. And I've went through a lot of the, the 80s Crockett stuff. And of course, I lived through the mid 90s WCW stuff. But the early 90s stuff, you know, it's always been labeled as bad. So I've never had kind of a hankering to go back and see it, with the exception of pay per views that I watch for How Did This Get Booked. But there's a lot of really hidden gems and this brad armstrong bobby eaton match is definitely one of those hidden gems that i need to go check out and if i get any any type of break in my current schedule i might take a break from you know watching the wire and watch some early wcw just to catch some brad armstrong bobby eaton matches because early 90s bobby eaton pretty untouchable and brad armstrong i think is coming into his athletic physical prime at this moment in time which is unfortunate because he's just getting saddled with all kinds of weird gimmicks and they don't know what to do with him. So uh, another another parallel between me and Brad Armstrong is that we came into our physical peaks at the absolute wrong period of time in the business. Mine just happened to be in 2009, the most insufferable years of independent wrestling, and Brad Armstrong's <laughs> happened in early 90s WCW. And I just want to give a shout out that I've had the DVD box set of The Wire for eight years. Still never watched it. <laughs> oh, fuck. Next crazy gimmick he gets. In uh, April of 91, the fabulous Freebirds began speaking of a third member named Fantasia. And at Super Brawl <laughs> 1, Fantasia showed up to help the Freebirds capture the vacant WCW United States Tag Team titles from the Young Pistols. I don't know if you've seen the episode of Always Sunny where they do pro wrestling and they're like the birds of war, but they just kind of look like chickens or whatever. That's how Brad Armstrong looked in his weird costume. 
Well, and as as you may or may not know, Fantasia was Dusty Rhodes' nickname for Michael Hayes, so they made this character Fantasia. I think he's even referred to as Bad Street at one point in time, but it's just Brad trying to make whatever work and do some sort of goofy... I think didn't he do his like, weird dances and mannerisms when he was... Yeah, he talks about in the shoot how, because this is the first time he's a heel, too, which is significant, and he's also under a mask, which Brad talks about how it was so freeing for him, because they always talk about how Brad's such a cut-up, he's a goof, and in the in the back, he's totally playing around, but when he got on stage, when he got in front of that camera, it kind of, you know, it, it fucked with him, and... um you can see the freedom that Brad's like, all right, all right, no one knows who I am. And they never reveal who Bad Street ever was. So it's Brad be like, all right, this is something new. This is, gives me freedom. This lets me play around. And you can see it in his mannerisms and his, uh, his enjoyment of the role. It was only the Fantasia bird gimmick for the first thing. And then Disney was like, nah, 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 nah. And then he was Bad Street. And then he didn't really have the feathers so much. I, I don't know. Nick, you could. My only comments on the situation is that they missed the obvious name of Brad Street instead of doing Bad Street. And that makes me sad until this day. Hey, you don't want to tip your hat. You don't want to give you know, give it all away, you know? <laughs> One of the best uh, matches that I watched, uh, Bad Street versus Pillman. Clash of the Champions 16, it's Brad Armstrong under a mask and full body gear against Pillman, but they go all out, they do some crazy fucking spots, Pillman does a suicide dive that seriously, you think he might have died, you might have seen the highlight of it, but a uh, really good match, really quick, good, uh, efficient match, definitely worth checking out. June 3rd, 91, Brad would get his hands on some WCW gold when the Freebirds won the WCW six-man tag team championship from JYD, Ricky Morton, and Tommy Rich. They dropped the belts about two months later to Dustin Rhodes, Tom Zink, and spoiler alert, our next episode, Big Josh. In September 91, Brad did his first of 10 New Japan tours. One of the best stories that Brad tells in his shoot is uh, he talks about Brad and Scott Norton versus uh, Muda and Hiroshi Hase. First off, I want to put Brad over as a storyteller. He's kind of a goofy, casual, kind of white bread dude. But he's so good in just casually telling a story, man. He, he busted me up so many times with just giving me the, the, the facts and just the casual way he did it. But he tells a story about this tag match. And uh, you can see the exchange if you watch it. But Hase and him getting to a, a slap exchange. Where it's one of those, like, you hit me, I gotta fight back so you'll respect me thing. And Hase slaps the fucking shit out of him so much. You can see Brad drop for that that kind of flash KO moment. Brad gets his brain smacked out of his head. And Brad tells a story about, in the back, how they were like, you make people sad. You make people sad. But what they meant was that you make people care about you. You make people weep for you because of how much you sold, how much you created empathy for yourself. And it's, it's, there's only 10 minutes out of a 23 minute match, which is really fucking good in itself. And I wish I hopefully can find the full thing, but uh, look this one up because Brad really puts it over and it's definitely worth it. Cause man, they really, they really work, man. And if, if I've got this kind of correct in my head, new Japan, like juniors, he he's coming over here in, in 91. So he's just three years too early before being intermixed with Dean, Eddie, Redacted, Jericho, all of those guys, right as 
the super juniors thing is kind of exploding. I, I think Liger's not really a thing quite yet in '91. If he yeah, is, he's it, like that's like right when he was becoming Liger. Yeah. So 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 uh, the the New Japan Juniors hadn't really taken off yet. Where it seemed like that was more like it was lifting off like '92, '93, peaked at '94. Here he is, like a year or two early, and also too, he's two years uh, removed from Owen Hart being over there, and kind of like the the, the juniors kind of got like a, a second life there, and then of course he's nine years post Dynamite Kid, Davy Boy, Cobra, Kobayashi, Tiger Mask, so ninety one is kind of like I mean he's wrestling Hase, who effectively. Is kind of a junior, but at the same time, too, still seen as like a main event guy. So, like, he could have came in and been in the mix with the light heavyweight division at, at, at any different era, and it would have panned out much more successful as opposed to just being a tour. And just goes to show, like, some of just the really bad timing that exists in Brad Armstrong's career. Just imagine Brad Armstrong being mixed in with the Super J Cup or yeah, him right. being around to wrestle. Dynamite Kid in his prime, or even being over there in 88 with Owen. Mm. Having Owen Hart, Brad Armstrong matches in New Japan, how crazy yeah. that would have been. Or, or Black Tiger with uh, Mark Rocco, uh, even like in the late, later 80s. So he's just, he's three years removed or three years ahead of his time in, in kind of an era and just a very weird point, moment in time. Or imagine if. He's doing the Candyman and the Freebird thing, but then he goes over to Japan and he's wrestling a Liger when he's got a full head of steam going on. So, um, just it's kind of kind of just a shame, you know. It's kind of the the timelines are a bit weird because Brad did get some of those shots, like he did get to work with like Guerrero and Malenko and Benoit then, but I think it was kind of in between all his gimmicks. So maybe the momentum he had there had kind of petered out for him for them to really push him because he had so many uh, Japan tours. That it was just bam, 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 bam. But it it was it was interesting to see how he had his moments, but he still kind of missed the perfect moment. Yeah, if if you fantasy book the Super J Cup, and then yeah, the beauty of the Super J Cups was just the mixture of styles, the mixture of yeah. lucha, the mixture of you know Japanese style and Mer- traditional American style, but also kind of that Calgary style. Imagine mixing in good Southern babyface style, which Brad was perfect <laughs> in, and put that in the Super J Cup, and then I think you've got a very well-rounded picture of professional wrestling, and I think that's the only way that you enhance upon that, is putting something like a Brad Armstrong in Super J Cup 90, 94, 95, and then you have all aspects of professional wrestling. You put a comedy wrestler in that, and you have everything in professional wrestling. Are you fantasy booking yourself into this, Jake? Is that what you're doing there? Why not? Why not? Just put me in there. I'll, I'll even kind of cover a little bit of the Southern style, too. You put me in the Super J Cup 94, and crazy shit's going to happen. Have me and Hayabusa go a couple rounds. We'll see what happens. That's a Fire Pro match. I want to see recreated on YouTube, people. So uh, later in 91, Armstrong was giving another WCW masked gimmick. Arachnaman from Web City. But kind of like how Disney shut down Fantasia... Marvel Comics saw this and its similarities to Spider-Man causing WCW to quickly drop the character. Arachnaman pins Tommy Rich. <laughs> there you go. That's a statement. Arachnaman versus Cactus Jack. That's a match. 
Arachnaman versus Stone Cold for the TV title with JR and Rick Rude trying their best to put over the idea of Arachnaman. And then my favorite, this amazing six-man tag, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Arn Anderson, and Bobby Eaton versus PN News, Big Josh, and Arachnaman. I mean, five stars, <laughs> shit, man. A spider, a lumberjack, and a fucking terrible rapper. That makes no sense. <laughs> The bad thing is, it's like a purple and gold spider suit in the way his head's designed. Like, every time I look at him, I just saw Mr. fucking Peanut. <laughs> it was the worst thing. I was like, oh, God, it's the peanut guy with the monocle. Fuck, he's got to wrestle again. Shit. On July 5th, 1992, Armstrong won the WCW Light Heavyweight Championship by defeating Scotty Flamingo at a house show. Brad would actually be the last WCW lightweight champ holding the title for 59 days, during which he injured his knee in a match against the Great Muda while in Japan. They stripped Brad of his title for not defending it. They said they were going to hold a tournament for a new champion, but they just kind of didn't. Go back to the 7-5-92 Flamingo match. One of the best examples, if you want to see how fluid and good Brad is in the ring, watch that. I think it's a house show little pickup uh, highlight reel. But the finish on this match where it's kind of a suplex spin reversal that Brad does into the Russian leg sweep float over is fucking seamless and looks so good. It's a 10 out of 10. Go watch this little clip because it shows you how good and how beautiful Brad could be in the ring. And Flamingo was a good wrestler too. Uh, he was. <laughs> and that's the... It's been a long time running joke with Caleb Connolly that he's in the Scotty Flamingo era of his <laughs> professional wrestling career, that he is just one really breakout gimmick away from being a big star, but also to getting away from having good matches and just becoming this brawler and a character. And I wish you would just hurry up and invent whatever his version of the Raven character is. So... Our generation's version of Tommy Dreamer, Jake Manning, can start getting into a big feud with him, and we can go from there and tell some great stories. After recovering from knee surgery, Brad would spend the next few years bouncing around New Japan and still working in WCW without any major storylines or feuds. Things you gotta watch. Watch the Great Muda 2 out of 3 Falls, WCW Saturday Night Match. You got Jim Ross, you got Ricky Rackman from the Headbangers Ball on commentary. But 2 out of 3 Falls, Muda and Brad, it's so damn good. They go like 30 minutes on WCW Saturday Night TV Match. Must watch. It's ugh, good shit. Uh, watch Brad versus Redacted Clash of the Champions 22. It's only like a 9-10 minute match, but so fucking good. The way they work. The way the intensity in all of them, I mean, you already know that with those two involved. Uh, watch Regal versus Brad Saturday night matches. There's all this. There's just look up Brad WCW Saturday night, and if you see a name that you know can work, watch that eight to ten minute match, and it'll be great. Um, we also got to bring up that uh, of all the gimmicks he did, he did uh, Dos Hombres with Ricky Steamboat, uh, where they were just uh, pretending to be luchadors. It was another one of those gimmicks. That Brad just got thrown into, and it was it was just like, eh, let's see if this works. But I don't even I don't even think I watched a match on that. A anybody remember Dos Hombres? I do not, but I do remember Brad being on WCW Saturday Night a lot in 1995, and it was just mm -hmm. he was just there, and they would just throw him out there and have like good matches, matches I always enjoyed. And there was 
one particular match. And keep in mind, he was just very much in the middle. Sometimes he would win. Sometimes he would lose. He was just kind of there. But, you know, Arn Anderson would wrestle on WCW Saturday night in 95 and usually win unless he was wrestling the Renegade. And there was oh. one particular WCW Saturday night. And go out of your way to watch this. This is in my youth my formative years, this still sticks out of my head, where they decided to have a, a main event on WCW Saturday Night was Brad Armstrong versus Arn Anderson. And keep in mind, Brad's just very much in the middle, winning and losing from time to time. But this promo that Arn Anderson cuts makes this such an important thing. After you've seen Arn Anderson wrestle in main event matches, he's always on the pay-per-view. He's usually got the TV title. He's in a featured spot he's never losing on wcw saturday night but he's wrestling someone like brad who's you know kind of in the middle winning and losing from time to time and arn cuts his promo that makes it makes us such an important match and i'll never forget this line as long as i live that capped up the whole promo where arn put all this weight to this one particular match on wcw saturday night just a random episode and arn says right into the camera and says that there's never been an Armstrong that could whip an Anderson. And just, it's the, oh, it's everything you want in professional wrestling. Nailed it, brought it home, match delivered, promo delivered. Go out of your way to see that. I believe it's sometime in 1995 right there. It's right in the kind of the mix of the Renegade and all that weird stuff that's happening. But it's just, just a perfect moment where those two collide and they make it special. And I feel like it was one of those things that were attempts to make brad kind of a thing like i feel like this is something that arn would have been like give me brad armstrong let me do something with brad arm let me show right. you what we could do with him as opposed to him just floundering here on wcw saturday night and like turn that into a hatfield and mccoy's type thing like family versus family let's fucking go yeah and uh the the i want to go back on one thing um the dos hombres team up with steamboat one of the the most interesting things that brad brought up in his shoot because that was the other thing he's funny he's likable but man he had insight and he would own up to so much stuff he talked about how he stole a bunch of his selling from ricky steamboat and the weirdest thing he, he said he stole how steamboat would sell with his hands and his fingers like he would reach up and like try to pull energy into himself or he would really reach out there and it would connect with the crowd and I, I love that insight and just that owning up to being like, yeah, that was good. I'm going to take that. But I, I hadn't thought about it before. But just seeing Steamboat, how he would do that, Brad was like, yep, that's good. I'm taking that. And Brad was asked on the shoot why he left WCW at this time. And he said, well, I failed the drug test. Or yeah. as Brad said, I didn't study. Or maybe I stayed up all night studying. Yeah, that's the <laughs> ticket with his whole fucking John Lovitz bit. It had to be marijuana. Like, the Armstrongs are notorious <laughs> for loving the cannabis, which, you know, there, there was kind of a stigma when I when I first heard about a lot of that. But now, like, yeah, fuck, why, why can't the Armstrong family all, all smoke pot? Why can't they all just smoke pot? <laughs> like, especially... Yeah, how, how does that affect other people? It doesn't. Especially, like, Bob's battling cancer right now, but still getting his workouts in every day. Like, that, <laughs> that guy deserves a little joint or two. And there's Tracy Smothers told this amazing story of hanging out with the Armstrong. Tracy was kind of like a ex, like a, a surrogate Armstrong brother to the Armstrong family. Like, oh, because obviously he, he teamed with one of them. And he so he kind of felt like he was kind of part of the family, much in the same sense that I feel like I'm a son to 
George South and Ian George Jr. are kind of brothers in kind of a kind of a sense, and we kind of interact as brothers in, in, in that way too. Tracy tells this great story of it was uh, Steve and Tracy and Bob Armstrong all smoking in the back of this big van because the, when they would go to town to town, they would, they would all travel together. They'd all get in a van and sometimes they'd sleep in that van, just you know, save money on hotel rooms. And they would park the van in a parking lot, just get high, pass out, get up, drive to the next town, get a workout in or get a tan or go fishing or do whatever they do before the matches. <laughs> and there was a particular night they were in a parking lot. They're all getting high. And all of a sudden these guys started rattling on the van, like fucking with like, they're trying to break in. And Tracy, and Steve jumped out to fucking, you know, see what it is. And all of a sudden it's like three or four guys. And it's just Tracy and Steve like, oh, fuck, we're, we're outnumbered here. We're going to like get our ass beat. And we just were high. So like we're, we're impaired a little bit. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, a high bullet Bob Armstrong <laughs> jumps out of the back of this van. Both the doors open up out of the back and it jumps out of this, this van wielding nunchucks <laughs> <laughs> fucking scares them off <laughs> and it's just it's, if you ever want a good laugh think about a high bullet bob armstrong jumping out of the back <laughs> of a big like windowless molester van wielding nunchucks that just i'm michelangelo <laughs> yeah the original ninja turtles uh instead of pizza it's blunts <laughs> But yeah, that, that's just how the Armstrongs got down, man. Just just get a little high, chill out, you know, like not hurt nobody. What you do in your private time is, is on you. And even too, like, we'll, we'll probably get into it later, but this is a, a good point to bring it up. When Brad worked for WWE, one of the reasons he got fired is because they thought he didn't take things seriously because they he was flying to whatever town they were going to that night. And before he flew out, he, you know, had a little time. He got to the airport a little early. He's like, ah, my flight takes off in about 90 minutes. Before I get on this plane, I'm going to have a beer. Well, one of the office guys saw Brad having a beer midday before they had a show that night. And they're like, oh, you think you should be drinking? And he goes, I'm just having a beer before my flight. Am I not allowed to do that? And they kind of always looked at Brad as like, Mm, he's not taking his job seriously. Like, oh, he gets fucked up on the job. Uh, and, but Brad just like, I'm just taking the fucking edge off, man. And it's a beer. And it's a light yeah. beer, in fact. Do you not see that I have abs <laughs> as a 40-year-old man? So back the fuck up. So after leaving WCW in 95, that June, Armstrong joined Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And by August, he was splitting his time between Smoky Mountain and the United States Wrestling Association in Memphis. During this run, Brad Armstrong won the USWA Heavyweight Championship for three days, trading it with Billy Jack Haynes, and he'd also win the Smoky Mountain Heavyweight Championship three times. I mean, obviously, Jake in on this, but, you know, when it comes to who is Jim Cornette's god of a wrestler, then Brad Armstrong's going to be the epitome of, like, that's the guy that I want to push. And when he brought him in, he pushed him immediately he had a feud with Cornette's The Militia, which I wasn't familiar with this. All right, here's a stable. Jim Cornette's the manager. We got Buddy Landell, Perry Gordy, Al Snow, The Punisher. I forgot who that is. Tommy Rich and Unabom, a.k.a. Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Ted Kaczynski. And um, they, I watched one match where it was Brad and Buddy Landell, and they restarted the match three times. I think there's there's this series, if you look on Cage Match, 
where there's uh, like six or seven matches between Buddy Landell and Brad Armstrong for the vacant heavyweight title, and they all end in a DQ. And I think Jim Cornette went crazy with dusty finishes. Like it was nothing but dusty finish after dusty finish after dusty finish. And then you, there's there's a match where him and Buddy have a lumberjack with tennis rackets match. It's just it's Jim Cornette running wild with Brad Armstrong as his god and his booking as his sanity. The the Armstrong Army and and all that and they, the shirts that they sell for Armstrong Army was always like a big thing. And also too like Bullet Bob Armstrong was the commissioner. He was like this authority <laughs> figure coming in. So him bringing his son in it only makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It fit perfectly. I, I too, I have all of the Smoky Mountain television episodes on a spindle of DVDs. I used to watch a couple every night. Um, it's been a long, long, long time. Actually, I let I let my friend borrow them for a while, so it was many years before I ever got them back. I may need to dig into them. So I have a lot of wa- watching to do, but uh, I don't have a lot of time during this quarantine <laughs> to, to watch. So if I if I live my life like the rest of you right now, I would have watched so much professional wrestling, early 90s WCW, and of course, Smoky Mountain TV, and The Wire, of course. <laughs> and The Wire. There's also a good deep dig thing. Uh, find uh, Brad versus Fit Finley. It is one of those CWA Germany Otto Von's uh, boxing format matches. It's it's good stuff. Brad comes out to Born in the USA by the boss. Um, it's a fan cam. You know, every three minutes they go to their corner. It's it's good shit. It's I mean, it's Finley and Brad, so you know they're working their ass off, and then they turn up the notch when they know they have to. And it's it's also a rare time where Brad works as a heel without a mask, so you get to see him kind of do that. He has a little fun with that. But the thing is 40 minutes long, and then YouTube doesn't even have the finish, so be prepared for that disappointment. A Smoky Mountain folded in November of 95, which led to Armstrong eventually returning to WCW February 96. Because he passed a drug test. <laughs> Woo! At uh, May's Slamboree, Brad Armstrong took on Dean Malenko for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. And this match is good, and the finish, super awesome. Oh, man. It, it, this is another one. Brad's, like, I, I kind of brought it up, but his selling was so realistic. He really did know how to pull that empathy from the crowd and make you care about him because he did that stuff where it was like oh did that really hurt him he kind of he sells it kind of weird like you know a real person would if they kind of got hit the wrong way and the way brad sells his leg you really really feel for him and uh, i just want to point out that uh for over half the match one of brad's butt cheeks is pulled out of his trunks and is on display the whole time dean beats him with a fireman's carry gut buster off the second rope it looks insane or as uh bobby heenan said move 627 out of 1000 from here it was more of bouncing between new japan and getting used to get up and comers over in wcw 97 would be the year of the armstrong curse where brad would lose pretty much every single match he had it always, I, th- I think even in that Arn Anderson promo, the Armstrong curse was even discussed a little bit or touched on. So it kind of been a thing. So it being very prevalent with the fans is, is interesting. And, I, and I'll never forget when Road Dog uh, in his shooter view talked about winning the tag team titles. He even talked about the Ar- Armstrong curse. 
he was like, oh, me winning the tag belts was a big deal because that Armstrong curse, that's a real goddamn thing. Like he was, <laughs> I mean, he was feeling it. So can you imagine Brad, how he was feeling? Because of all the guys in the Armstrong family, like I probably, you probably look at someone like, you know, Road Dog, and you're like, oh, okay, well, he's he's got some charisma, but as far as like talent goes, a lot of it's in Brad, and Scott's an amazing wrestler, and Steve's really good too, but you know, Brad should have been the one, you know, and, and here is Road Dog. So, so imagine how it probably feels to be Brad. We're like, I'm the most, everybody regards me as maybe the more talented one, even though my brothers wouldn't say that because we're all feuding with each other at all moments of time. <laughs> and we haven't been in the backyard to whoop each other's ass in a decade or two. But, you know, how that feels and, and kind of look towards that. And once you kind of get that label of being in, I hate to use the word underachiever, because no. underachiever in pro wrestling is determined upon somebody with a pencil not because of what you do right. uh, sometimes uh, that that's a tough build to swallow and if you know you're that talented you know you're that good and nobody else sees that in you that's tough man and you talk about brad being just this guy who is just fantastic in the locker room but once you get him around the camera he's he's not as good you know that can get in your head a little bit too brad could cut a fucking promo when he wanted to it just like he needed the main story motivation he needed something to really push him to where it really meant something to him i mean i could be off base here but it's like he could cut a promo if he wanted to you can find him but sometimes it just it wasn't in him if you remember from our mr perfect episode in 1999 ba brad armstrong would become a member of the no limit soldier stable better tag team brad armstrong and tim horner or brad armstrong and swole <laughs> You know what? Swole. You got the little guy, big guy dynamic. <laughs> Brad goes in, does all the heavy lifting. Swole gets tagged in, power bomb. They're over as fuck. Listen, you already know how I feel about Tim Warner. <laughs> all right, so I'm I'm swole all the way. So Bash at the Beach 99, Brad, Conan, Rey Mysterio, and Swole took on the West Texas Rednecks, Kurt Henning, Bobby Duncan Jr., Barry Wyndham, and Kendall Wyndham. Brad gets tagged in, gets the best of Mr. Perfect, but later in the match, Kurt gets a little payback, hitting Brad with the perfect plex, and B.A. is eliminated, but the soldiers go on to win. Also, if you want to see Brad Armstrong do one of the best drop kicks in the history of professional wrestling in camo pants, <laughs> there you go. And uh, poor B.A., he's the first one to get eliminated on the team, because Brad just don't get no respect. He's probably the only one who was willing to do the job on that side of the team. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you want to hear Brad Armstrong do a Master P impersonation, <laughs> watch his shoot interview. Brad talked about partying with Master P in his dressing room. And just the image of Brad Armstrong partying with Master P, that's your enjoyment right now. And see, marijuana just bringing all different types of people together. <laughs> Brad Armstrong, born to wrestling royalty in Marietta, Georgia, coming together with Master P. When were those points ever going to come together in life if it wasn't professional wrestling and cannabis? I don't know where I can fit this in anywhere else in my life. There was a member of the No Limit Soldiers, the real rap group, named uh, C. Murder. He was actually Master P's brother. Uh, <laughs> he went to prison for, guess what, murder. And if the lawyer oh, didn't shit. hold up the evidence and go, see, murder, then fuck everything. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after the No Limit Soldiers broke up, Brad would get in a feud with Berlin, who was Alex Wright after getting into InfoWars. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty spot on. <laughs> Berlin attacked Armstrong's brother, Scott, and badmouthed 
the United States of America. I have in my notes, Berlin hates all Americans and Brad is American, so that's our feud. <laughs> feud ran through Halloween Havoc, where Brad, dressed in an American flag sweater from a pilot gas station, defended America. Weird finish to this match. Berlin goes for like a, a neck breaker. Brad holds onto the ropes. Berlin hits the mat, and then they just pin him. Like That was the finish. That was enough to put him down for three. It was like one of those quick, like, uh, roll-up jobs, you know? It's just like, oh, I'm so unaccustomed to this situation that I don't know what to do but get pinned. After Halloween Havoc, Fitz Russo handed Brad a new gimmick, Buzzkill, which was meant to be a parody off the rogue dog, Jesse James, but the gimmick more or less bombed because 90% of the crowd had no clue that Brad and Rogue Dog were brothers and thought it was just a cheap ripoff. Yeah, he's, he just plays kind of a peace-loving hippie, no war. It's kind of funny because Brad gets to show some personality. He There's like a thunder sketch where he's outside with the crowd before the show. He's like, hey, sign this petition, man. What's this petition for again? I forget, but it's a good <laughs> petition, man. <laughs> he just kind of does the Cheech and Chong kind of goofy dude. Um, there's a Tank Abbott match where he gets knocked out with one punch. Watch the Chavo Guerrero match if you want a totally botched what the fuck is happening beginning to a match. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's, Brad hated it. it. It's, it's weird. In March 2000, Brad severely injured his knee in an accident backstage at a WCW Saturday night taping where Armstrong got run over by Juventud Guerrero and Psychosis. Brad describes it in an interview. They they were leaving, uh, I think, I don't know if it was a center stage taping. I think it was. And he was just in the parking lot, and Juventud Psychosis were driving through with no uh, lights on. And once they saw him, they hit the brakes, but it was on gravel, so it didn't track too well. They hit Brad, I think he says, in one, in one of his knees. It pops him up, but he lands on his feet like a cat. But then Brad is such a good dude that he doesn't even uh, report who did it to him so they don't get in trouble. But there was enough witnesses that they at least recognized that it was an accident. But Brad, even on the shoot, doesn't want to name him. You can look it up. And Brad says, th the best part of this is Brad, like, wholeheartedly is like, I harbor no resentment to them at all. I consider it a present. First two years of my daughter's life and the last two years of my grandmother's life, I would not have gotten to be there for them while rehabbing my knee. If it wasn't for this, I would have been on the road. I consider it a gift. So Brad's one of those silver lining to just the extreme of extremes to getting hit by a fucking car. And Brad turned it into like, you know what? Life ain't all bad. Well, and also too, you know, Hoovian psychosis there in on probably a work visa. So yeah, he brought they, that up too. So know? that's going to be like <laughs> kind of an issue. And these guys are pretty popular in TV at the time. And of course, Brad just being the consummate professional wrestler, like, Hey, I don't want to mess with your money. I don't want to like ruin right? this guy's livelihood. So I don't want to ever bring it up or, or have it come back around. I don't know what the statute of limitations are on any of this. I want them to still be able to come into this country, make money and benefit from, you know, what we have set up here in America. The complete opposite of everybody in Georgia. <laughs> uh, so uh, just Brad wholesome dude that way and that's that's awesome but yeah that is kind of the ultimate silver lining is that he gets to spend time with his family and, and in you know in this injury but also too i do know from like here on brad always had that uh metal brace around his knee for, from here on out just forever to so it obviously left some lasting damage past these two years 
while going through rehab, his WCW contract expired in 2001, and Brad actually left the business for a couple of years until returning to the independent circuit in 2003. On September 12, 2006, Brad signed a contract with the WWE, and he'd work a few house shows as part of the newly revived ECW, taking on Stevie Richards and Eric Perez. By December 06, Brad was starting to do spots commentating for the ECW brand, but by January 07, Brad was again backstage as a producer and or road agent. Why do you think this didn't move forward? Because if you've ever heard Brad talk about pro wrestling, it's it's magical. He's a great commentator. I, I think kind of what I the story I mentioned earlier is that at an, at an airport, they saw him drinking a beer while waiting for his flight. And they had a show that night and somebody, you know, like that's just the way the political game is played in WWE. Like somebody saw it that had an axe to grind. Maybe they had an axe to grind because of something Road Dog did to them down the road or, or in a previous time or, or just, you know, had that bullshit mentality that WWE has. You just can't relax at any moment in time. The fact that you want to have a beer and relax uh, when we have a show to do tonight, uh, that sounds ridiculous. Why would you do that? Like just that mentality from the top all the way down is spread throughout. And Brad's never been that type of guy. No matter how much knowledge he has, you know, if you don't have that mentality, you're not going to last that long. And if you have that mentality and you burn out real fast um, and you can't maintain that type of mentality at all moments in time in front of all people, you're not going to last very long either. And and that's just kind of the shame of it. I The little bit that I saw when he was on, on TV and he was commentating, I thought he was good. And he was great. And I think he could help out a lot with guys with matches i think he had a great grasp of everything imagine him being a trainer at the performance center nowadays like i think he'd be fantastic at that you know like sometimes your mentality just doesn't fit in the wwe machine and i think that's kind of what happened with brad is he was just too laid back of a guy to deal with high school fucking bullshit and if you're sick you work through it and the it, the, the wwe is more important than fucking anything on the fucking planet and if you don't fucking see it that way and you don't understand that and you don't just fucking want to jump in front of traffic or in front of a front of a car that's driven by psychosis then you don't want to be in the wwe like it's that that mentality where someone like brad would see a mentality like that and go that's bullshit man fuck (laughs) off i think it was also another one of those just brad with the bad timing because apparently uh the ecw the house shows that he was working as an agent for the business wasn't too good you know the ratings eventually didn't do too good apparently Word around the campfire that Taz was kind of sandbagging him and not wanting to help him out too much. So it just, yet again, it just seemed like, oh, this is a great opportunity. And then everything just kind of fell to shit again. While working backstage, Brad was still able to take bookings, which he did up to 2011. He'd also become a personal health consultant and a wrestling trainer. There's like, I don't know what, three or four Brad Armstrong versus George South matches from 2007-ish on the old High Spots Network. Well, actually, George made me make a DVD of George wrestling Brad Armstrong, (laughs) which I can procure that copy of that DVD, rip it, and put it up on our Patreon page. So uh, go check out all of 
George and Brad Armstrong's matches that we have available in the High Spots Library. Uh, I think nobody's going to have an issue if I put that on our Patreon page, so go go check that out. That'll be a good, fun little thing that we can put up there. These are all ones in the, this this run of 2003 to 2006 2007 so it's all those matches that we personally filmed from high spots that we'd have yeah. rights to which once again i don't think they're going to have an issue um me putting them up on the patreon page but brad at this time it's sad that he he was just kind of doing indie shows here and there and he you know wasn't making a living on pro wrestling anymore or at least to the level that he was before that is sad but at the same time too it should be remarked um brad's wife was a high-level executive or involved in DirecTV. She had a very good job, and I believe in something like DirecTV or cable. Time Warner, I think. Time Warning or something. Yeah. Like if she had a very good job, I think Brad's famous quote when he got fired from WWE, people were like, "Oh, so sorry to lose your job." And Brad said, "No, no, 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 no." Like, me losing my job is not a big deal. My <laughs> wife losing her job, that's a big deal. So, like, I think he enjoyed the fact that he got to spend more time with his kids, be family man, kind of take care of the home more. Like, I, I know he worked at, like, a like a health food store. Like, he just, like, he did his work to keep busy, but I think he enjoyed the fact of all those years that he was on the road away from his family. Like, hey... This is the time that I focus on the family, the home, and I take care of it, much like my wife did when I was on the road, but now she has a career, so I will support her in her career. And that's just, that's a goddamn dream for me. Man, if I could <laughs> if I could get that, I'd be all about that in a, in a heartbeat. <laughs> but, but just how wonderful Brad was. And I remember doing multiple shows with him. He was always super cool. And George would always tell these stories about how there's this one one show where I think Les Thatcher and Ricky Steamboat were doing a seminar, and they were trying to get this guy to do an arm drag. And Ricky Steamboat's having like like a hard time communicating it to this kid, and this kid's not understanding it. And you know, this is when Ricky was a little bit leery about you know doing stuff in the ring. This was pretty fresh off of probably a back surgery and he was kind of laid up. Where you know later he was throwing arm drags left and right at the high spots training center. But he, they're having a hard time trying to explain to this kid to throw a, like a good, good drop. It was a drop kick, excuse me. It was, it was a really good drop kick. And Brad Armstrong just happened to walk in because there was a show later on that night uh, after the seminar. And Brad walked in and he had like a couple of uh, a couple of his younger kids with him and stuff like that. And he had some of the toys like on a, like a little bag or, or whatever. He, he had like a bunch of stuff on his shoulder and he had, like you know, his kids were coming in. And uh, they were trying to teach this kid how to do a drop kick. And this kid just wasn't getting it. And Les Thatcher and Ricky Steamboat were going to do a drop kick. And, you know, Brad kind of noticed that they were having a little trouble trying to communicate. And they needed somebody to do a good drop kick to kind of illustrate the point. And Brad just set his bag down, walked right in the ring. I'm like, all right, this, boom. And just threw this perfect drop kick. Not even stretching, not even doing anything. Just just walked in the ring, yeah. you know, later advanced stage of his life and his career. Like, I, I need to stretch. I need to be able to touch my toes before I do anything in a wrestling ring. But he just walked right in, threw the picture-perfect drop kick, went back, picked his bag up, and moved, went right back in the locker room. Like, that's just <laughs> how fantastic he was. I remember doing a show, actually, in Marietta, Georgia. It was like a double shot. We had Gainesville, Georgia in the morning. And then we had a show in Marietta, Georgia that night. Brad was on both of those shows. And 
I don't know what what he was doing or what he was saying, but gosh, Brad was just the funniest guy in the locker room. He was he was doing like little bits, like like a comedian green room. That's what he turned a wrestling <laughs> locker room into. And and you had all these guys. You had I think you had Hacksaw. You had Dennis Condry. You had Kamala. Steve Carino was in the in the locker room. All of these guys are in the locker room, and Brad is just making all of us laugh hysterically just turning a wrestling locker room into like a comedian green room so he was just a real pleasure and an honor to just be around him during during this time in the indies and and get to meet him and just never ever 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 did i ever see him in a bad mood ever ever during this time never like bitter angry complete opposite that i've never seen a more happy individual ever then, in the fall of 2012, Brad went to the doctor for an undisclosed medical issue. About a week later, on November 1st, 2012, Brad Armstrong was shockingly and tragically found dead in his Kennesaw, Georgia home. Not a lot is known about how or why Brad passed away, but his former Lightning Express tag team partner and best friend Tim Horner speculated that Armstrong died from a heart attack. Either way, we lost one of the great in-ring workers at the way-too-young age of 51. So, uh, final thoughts on Brad Armstrong. First, I just want to give it to Brad for just rocking a mullet into 1996. <laughs> uh, most guys gave up in the late 80s, but Brad did not give a shit. Jake touched on it, but Brad's point about getting in front of a camera and it kind of throwing you off. I mean, you probably hear it from me sometimes. I have to really... I don't know. I got to get comfortable. I'm so, I got so many anxieties and weird shit that it just, I got to get into it before I feel like everything I say isn't stupid or just off. So when Brad owned up to that, it was refreshing to hear. It was not, it was nice to, it was nice to hear. Um, Brad's shoot interview, seriously, is one of my favorites. I can't, he, he's just such a good dude. He, Jake talked about how funny he is and he's kind of goofy funny. And it, normally if someone's doing it, they might, it might be kind of stupid and annoying, but you like Brad so much in this shoot that you're just, you get wrapped up in his shit. Like th going through all this pandemic shit and I had to move during all this crap dealing with my landlord that was just fucking like legitimately pure fucking hell. And Brad tells this story in his shoot about one time when a bunch of them, uh, I think it's mid South, they're driving through Louisiana and they get stuck in mud. And just the, the story that he tells the volume and just the depth of the laugh that the story gave me was like refreshing. It was one of those like, ah, oh shit, I haven't laughed like this in a while through all this stressful shit. And Brad just casually telling this story. You could, he's not trying that hard. He just nails it. And it really spoke to me. He t I mean, he tells a story about Ali punching Jake the Snake in Mid-South, uh, Kurt Henning's story, um, him botching a finish with Ric Flair at the Omni. Uh, Stan Hansen in Japan, and he tells a story about Scott Steiner telling Bill Watts to go fuck himself. It's there. It was that. Listen to this shoot. It was just like insight, insight, good guy, and just like, oh man, that story's good. Oh, that's a good story. Oh, that's a good story. Oh shit, that's a good story. And it was it just like added up to be like holy fuck. This is one of the best shoots I've ever listened to. And as much as Jake has put Brad over, and I've always respected his work, and like the the Muda match on Saturday night, you gotta watch, and just everything about his demeanor and the person he was, and hearing how much he would like, I think he, a lot of stuff he would volunteer 
he uh he helped a lot with volunteering at uh like the nearby churches around him and just like the the good dude that he seemed to be and how laid back he was and, you know he gets hit by a fucking car and he's like eh, it's, it's all right which could be a detriment but i mean that's just who brad was he was so damn good i just i want to go out on a quote that brad had because ideas and sentiments like this aren't around much or the mentality for the business or any art form in general and this is brad just casually talking about working a match and he said taking or giving doesn't matter it's not about me getting over it's about the match getting over it's about we not me brad armstrong is truly fucking awesome you know what i really loved about brad armstrong after watching him talk for a good bit he was an unapologetic pro wrestling dork I don't know if I've ever seen someone so damn giddy to sit around and just talk about wrestling. Like, he glowed. He seemed to have such a deep love and respect for it. He seemed to really treasure the people who came before him, uh, the people he worked with. And that's probably why he was so damn good at it. Like, when you love something that much, you know what the standard is. You know what being good is. You know what greatness is. And that's what you're constantly reaching for. He carried himself with, like, this humble pride he was just that dude who showed up and he did his job well because that's why he was there. Like gimmick didn't matter. Finish didn't matter. Forget the paycheck or, or notoriety. It was about being better today than you were yesterday. That's, that's Brad Armstrong to a T. He was the professional in the phrase professional wrestling. As a pro wrestler, I get asked a lot of times um, to do podcasts, interviews, all types of things. And, you know, the common question is like, oh, how'd you start in wrestling? Or, you know, what's your favorite match? But then a, a pretty common question all the time is, what is a dream match of yours? And I always, whenever they say, what's your dream match, anytime, any era, when they, when they, even if they don't even put that disclaimer on it, I immediately say Brad Armstrong. Before they even finish the question, he is and always will be the guy who I've always wanted to wrestle. Always. Always, now, and forever. And that just goes back to very early in my fandom of professional wrestling. Obviously, I grew up a WWF kid, watched it, hunted it down all the time. I've told it story many a times. And then my parents got DirecTV and rediscovered Monday Night Raw in 1995. And then all of a sudden, I discovered WCW, which I stumbled onto WCW in 1995. And WCW Saturday Night was that way in. And the three people who I loved watching on WCW Saturday Night was Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton is one of the blue bloods. Like I love Bobby. Like I had no context of Bobby Eaton as the Midnight Express, <laughs> but Bobby Eaton as a blue blood, I could see how talented he was, and I loved him to death. And Brad Armstrong, there's just something about him, and I just kept thinking, like, man, if I want to be a wrestler, I want to be like Brad Armstrong. And when I remember, when I, I remember when I first moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, for wrestling training. Actually, Michael Bacchio, the owner of High Spots, ran a training night for a while just to kind of offer an extra night of training at the high spots wrestling school. And, you know, he's not the, he knew how to wrestle enough, but you know, he, you know, knew he, his strong suit wasn't teaching in ring like George was, but he knew that he ha had a camera and he could have these guys cut promos. So he ran like a promo class for his training class. And it was like the first two or three weeks I was here and he basically said, all right, guys, uh, today we're going to cut promos and we're going to film it. And 
just cut a promo on whoever, whoever you want to have a match with. And of course, I cut a promo on Brad Armstrong because <laughs> that's how much I love Brad Armstrong. And I talked about how, as a kid growing up, I would see those WCW Saturday night doors open up on that set and I would see Brad Armstrong come out with his music playing and how I wanted to be the guy in the ring wrestling Brad Armstrong and this would be my opportunity. I've been hunting down that tape for years in the High Spots archive library because I would love to post it somewhere. Maybe I'll, I'll try and dig a little bit more, but that's just how much I love Brad Armstrong and the fact that George called me Bullet because I look like Brad Armstrong I just, that's why I just love my nickname so much. As it, it, and when, every time he calls me Bullet, it, it makes me smile a little bit because I just I love Brett Armstrong so much, and he had such an influence on on me loving professional wrestling as much as I do, but also to dedicating myself to the craft of professional wrestling. And it's sad that I'm never gonna get that opportunity to ever wrestle him. I think that's the biggest regret that I will probably have in my entire wrestling career is that I never pushed hard enough to have George or whoever was booking me on shows back then to just book me in one match with Brett Armstrong because it would have been one of the greatest moments of my entire life and I, I won't get to have that and that makes me very sad and you know I, it makes me very sad but I think the fact that I have an entire career to look back upon of Brad Armstrong, I think is the thing that makes me happy. I mean, just talking about this Russell War 91 match with Bobby Eaton, I got to go hunt that one down. Obviously, there's something I missed. There's so there's so much more that I can enjoy for the rest of my life because of Brad Armstrong. And I'm very serious. If we get past this and wrestling becomes what it used to be, I'm going to start using the Russian leg sweep with the float over a lot more. And even if I can't do it as well as I used to, I'm going to I'm going to try my darndest to do it just as good as Brad in, in his honor because that's something that George always says. If you have a favorite wrestler, when you want them to see your matches and be proud of what you do and my hope is i get an opportunity to go out there and do the rush of leg sweep with the float over it to make brad proud and i'll do it and think about him every single time all right that is brad armstrong's tim bell pod i hope all you out there are doing okay throughout all this crazy shit uh stay inside wash your hands think a doctor fight the patriarchy I uh, want to put this out there. The best place to find listening links for us is over at anchor.fm slash Pod. I think we have like 10 options from Apple to Spotify, whatever. Uh, so check that out. You also have Jake's YouTube and SoundCloud. Keep up with everything Pod by finding us on social media. And please leave us a rating and a review. And uh, finally, huge, huge, huge thank you to everyone supporting us on Patreon. Not only did we have a couple new patrons, a few people actually increased their pledges they were already doing just to help us during these quarantine times. So, yeah, you thank you so best. much, uh, Jake. Big thank you to several people. Uh, that is uh, Tommy Morgan. Hey, Tommy runs a great runs a great show. Des Moines area, a friend, a fellow comic. Thank you so much, Tommy. Also, too, Tommy's parents uh, run a pizza place in Des Moines. I think it's like, oh, it's, oh, uh, Tommy, don't kill me right now. It, it, 
ROs, TOs. It's West <laughs> by, by, by Merle Hay Mall. It's it's the best pizza in Des Moines. So if you've had some of the best pizza in the Des Moines area, it's it's Tommy's family's place. It's a fantastic pizza. I should have looked that up what, uh, on my phone real fast. But uh, Tommy, thank you so much. Uh, also, thank you, Steve Messa. Messa, thank you so much for all the work you do at FSCW and for contributing to our Patreon. Also, do a big uh, thank you for Miles Kane for for the upgrade. Miles, you are yeah, Miles. Miles, I promise you, if we get through this thing, one of the first places that I'm going to. Uh, head out as far as professional wrestling goes is Oregon. I'm going to head up your way, Miles. I'm going to do everything I can to get to prestige wrestling or whatever else. Uh, a little bit because of you, but also because uh, I got uh, a new fan up there. So I will make my way to Oregon for sure. Also, too, thank you so much, uh, DJ Lum. Yay. It's DJ Shadow Penguin. Shadow we know Penguin. who you are. Don't don't bullshit us. You're still the Shadow Penguin to us. Also, too, big thank you to Scott Siegel. Uh, I believe that's Siegel. Uh, I'm going to say Siegel. Yeah, that sounds like Siegel. Um, thank you, Scott. I appreciate all of that for upgrading because we really, really, really do appreciate you guys. Uh, so thank you, Tommy, Steve, Miles, Scott, and TJ. Find us on the social medias. You guys get it. Uh, buy some shit from High Spots. Yep. Oh, Jesus. Oh. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Man Scout, Jake Manning. Thank you very much for listening to 10 Bell Pod. I can't thank you guys enough for being subscribers and people who leave reviews, but also too, big, big thank you to people who are our patrons on Patreon. Now, some of you may be hearing that like, wait a minute, I'm not a, a patron on a Patreon for you guys. And you might be like, hey, I want to do that. I want it. And I want an extra thank you. I left a review. I subscribe, but I want an extra thank you from the Man Scout Jake Manning because that third thank you doesn't apply to you unless you are a patron on our Patreon page. Make sure you check it out at patreon.com slash 10 bell pod.